Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. Already this year, fast-spreading wildfires have burned up hundreds of thousands of acres in California, sending smoke plumes clear across the country. But with the landscape parched and the state primed to burn, this could just be a taste of what's in store. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we'll discuss how the state is getting ready as peak fire season approaches. And then in the second half, we'll also consider a related danger threatening lives this summer, extreme heat. Climate change is increasing the frequency, the intensity, and the duration of heat waves. First up, though, we're going to check in on how this year's wildfire season is shaping up. For that, welcoming back onto the program now, Chris Dykus, Professor of Wildland Fire and Fuels Management at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Chris Dykus, welcome back onto the program. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here. So I want to start off with getting a little bit of a snapshot of how this fire season is shaping up so far. Of course, last year, we saw more than 4 million acres burn. That's more acreage than we have ever seen in recorded history in California. And this year is potentially looking to give last year's records a run for their money. So uh, give us a sense of what those fire lines are looking like at this point and, and, and what is driving the growth of fires this fire season. Well, as of today, we've already burned a million and a half acres at this point. And uh, what the real problem is, is that everything is just so dry. Uh, most of the Western United States is under extreme to exceptional drought and everything is absolutely primed to go. And the only thing that's really keeping us from just going off like a complete nuclear bomb everywhere is that we haven't had as many ignitions simultaneously as we had last year when we had a monsoonal system move through and have lightning bust all up and down the state. 
but it's incredibly, incredibly difficult for the uh, the men and women on the fire line right now because of the heat and low relative humidity is just uh, causing extreme fire behavior all across the western U.S. Yeah, of course, there was concern about a possible dry lightning storm last weekend. Those concerns never really materialized. But it sounds like what you're saying is we are just one event like that away from some of the extreme massive fires that we saw last August. Well, fortunately, um, we only see these sorts of events in California historically about every 10 years. So we're kind of all crossing our fingers and we don't see that. But you know, at any point, one of these systems can move through and move uh, lightning into areas and uh, and cause these massive, massive wildfires, uh, in which just completely and absolutely overwhelms the, the fire service. You know, even with just the fires we have right now, the, the crews are being just pushed to their absolute limits. And a lot of these fires, because of the extreme fire behavior, it's to basically, you know, we get in there, we can do what we can, and then we're running away and trying to get into safe uh, zones uh, just because it, it's not their jobs to die uh, on the fire line. And so they're doing what, all that they can, but trying to uh, perform the most important objective, which is to go home at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just a huge amount of gratitude to, for all the people keeping residents of California safe right now. Tell us a little bit. One thing that we have been hearing from firefighters is that the, 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 the fires that they're encountering are burning faster and hotter than wildfires typically do at this time of year. Does that, again, just relate to the, the heat and the dryness that we're seeing this year? Oh yeah, we're seeing absolute uh, temperatures that uh, we're talking about uh, thousand-year uh, temperature events uh, across like the, the Rocky Mountains, um, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. It was uh, almost 120 degrees. That never happens in there. So all across uh, the northern Rockies, of the United States, and into southern Canada, we're seeing uh, real issues. And of course, just our normal. Um, climate that we have in California where it's hot, it's dry, uh, it's just normal as far as our Mediterranean uh, ecosystems in which we live. And then, you know, you put out uh, this uh, drought that's coming through. It's, everything is absolutely primed. And as soon as that first spark uh, starts off, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult just to get a handle on it in what we refer to as initial attack. And most of these ignitions, even though we're incredibly competent at putting small fires out and keeping them small, when they get away, they start creating their own weather systems. They create their own weather that uh, um, that exacerbates an already bad fire problem. Do these conditions seem worse than last year so far? Well, we're certainly uh, beyond uh, what we were last year. We're ahead of schedule, which last year we were ahead of schedule. And so mm. <laughs> we desperately, desperately need uh, precipitation uh, going forward, not only for you know this year, uh, but you know going forward to next year, because it's setting itself up for even worse next year with we're seeing the potential for La Nina system, which is we see that that typically is dry across California. And so we're hoping for uh, that rain is not going to be delayed, um, especially in Northern California, which we've seen over the last uh, five years or so, uh, which has extended the fire season. So uh, we need rain, we need snow, and we need it sooner than later. All right, let me just reintroduce you real quick. Uh, we are speaking to Chris Dykus, a professor of wildland and fuels management at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. This is KCBS In Depth. So 
Uh, I want to talk about what needs to be done in response to all of these troubling fire patterns. And I think that that question brings up uh, a recent investigation into claims Governor Newsom has uh, been making over the past several years about the extent of the state's wildfire prevention efforts. Um, So just to bring those findings into the conversation real quick, according to CAP Radio and NPR, while the governor claimed that in 2019 his fire prevention program had treated 90,000 acres, uh, the real value is only a small fraction of that number, uh, that report finding a number of other uh, discrepancies as well. And so it sounds like the governor's misleading statements may be related to mere communications breakdowns within his own administration. But uh, putting the, the the scandal itself aside for a second, we're talking about a governor who has made uh, fire prevention a key part of his administration's goals. And so... Here we are, several years into his administration, talking about tens of thousands of acres receiving treatment, Um, you know, the difference between 90,000 and 10,000. And when you hear what the experts have to say, they're talking about we need hundreds of thousands, maybe a a million uh, of acres treated every year. So when we're having these arguments about tens of thousands of acres, it all seems uh, somewhat discouraging, no? Well, it is discouraging. It's almost like you walk down a dark tunnel. It takes a, a long way to walk back out of that. And we are, um, there's so many lands that desperately need to be treated to make it more fire resilient. Now, I, I applaud the governor um, and his administration. They have released millions and millions of dollars to uh, local organizations to implement uh, these sorts of treatments uh, across the landscape. Um, but uh, that only applies for state lands, so that doesn't include any of the federal lands we see with the forests, uh, Forest Service or the Park Service or the Bureau of Land Management. And I know that from the local level, even our local Fire Safe Council in San Luis Obispo County has received millions of dollars to do this, uh, these very treatments that have been funded, uh, but sometimes it's difficult to do the good work um, in the timely manner in which these grants are allocated. So we get the money and we're incredibly grateful for this and it's like we have to spend it very, very quickly. And in some cases, uh, especially for these sorts of treatments that require like prescribed burns, uh, there's a very, very narrow window and all the stars have to align in order to be able to put these uh, uh, these treatments together, especially the prescribed burns. And when those don't align for whatever reason, uh, you just can't be able to do the sorts of treatments in that timely manner in which that grant has been allocated to the local uh, municipalities. Mm, yeah, no. Let's just make sure that uh, everybody understands the importance of these sorts of fuel treatments. Uh, when we talk about fire prevention in California, we're talking in the context of a state that has been preventing fires from burning in many areas for uh, over a century. And that's led to a massive fuel buildup. And uh, experts such as yourself have been calling for years to cut some of that back, in some cases using prescribed burns. So talk uh, to us a little bit about the importance of that work and uh, how far behind on it we really are. Sure. Well, again, we've most of the ecosystems in California, they have required a certain pulse of fire of a given intensity, a given size, um, a given frequency. And uh, because we got really, really good at putting out fires uh, throughout uh, our history, uh, all this vegetation almost imperceptibly has kind of grown up. So there is this need to be able to go out there and treat these different types of ecosystems to make them more resilient to when the eventual wildfire comes through. 
Um, and uh, it, and we know, we know that we know that we know that these things actually work. And these treatments aren't intended to stop the fire, but it's to make the landscape more resilient. So when fire eventually comes through, it's not destroying everything. Um, it's what's left behind is going to be much more healthy um, after the fire comes through and actually might provide some benefits. Um, and also it, it provides uh, protective measures, uh, safety uh, areas for our firefighters that are out there trying to protect us against these wildfires. And it kind of gives them an area that they are able, better able to get in and put uh, a dent as, in this fire spread. So it's not just going Katie bar the door and just going across a landscape unimpeded. Right. But as you suggested a moment ago, there are a number of things that make this work really difficult. Uh, also within that CAP Radio NPR report, uh, we heard from uh, senior fire officials with the state saying that one some of the, 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 the main challenges uh, it wasn't a matter of money. It was a fact that they lacked the agreements uh, to the land agreements to get these projects off the ground. And they also lacked the environmental clearance. So. There are certainly a lot of people that need to sign off on this. Uh, there's also smoke impacts that people are worried about. There's uh, a, a lot of folks that might say no and uh, make these projects uh, quite difficult to pull off. Well, this it's, it's becoming increasingly difficult, especially on the uh, private lands in which the state has primary fire responsibility areas. You know, some of these prescribed burns, it might uh, traditionally have went uh, several hundreds of acres. And then because the cost of real estate in California, we're continuing to subdivide these lands out. And every time you do that, you have to get permission from every single landowner of which you want to do uh, treat a given area, which it's pretty easy to do that with one or two landowners. But then you try to do that with 20 or 30 landowners and every single one has to come off and, and give their permission. This is a real problem. And you mentioned it earlier, um, some of uh, the things that are, are intended to protect our lands uh, in terms of our environmental quality, uh, there is a lot of red tape that has to go through. Um, and uh, it's very expensive red tape to be able to get out there before you're able to light the first match for a prescribed fire or fire up the first chainsaw. Um, and it, it gets frustrating and I, I feel uh, such sympathy for these uh, land managers that are desperately trying uh, to make uh, our landscape safer uh, for private residents and for our firefighters both. And uh, they get frustrated and they find that sometimes tools are taken away from them um, in terms of what they can do, you mentioned air quality, other sorts of uh, sensitive issues that are out there. And so it's important that we have all the tools in the toolbox and keep those tools in there and not say, you can't use this because of that, because it's gonna take all hands on deck and it's, uh, it's gonna to have to use a whole suite uh, of different types of treatments depending upon the area uh, that we're looking at. All right. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left in the program, but in closing, I'm going to ask a question that I think probably a lot of Californians have on their mind right now, and that is just how bad is this fire season going to get? I, I know that that's a dangerous question to ask because essentially asking you to predict the future here, but you know, uh, just based on what you're saying, it's, it seems like we are pretty close to similar disasters to what we've seen in recent years. Uh, what, what do we know? What can we say about what trajectory we're on at this point? Well, here's the prediction is that if we have ignitions, it's going to burn, it's going to burn big, and it's going to burn very scary and hot. So it is so incredibly important to keep those sparks, you know, from ever happening. 
Um, you know, and wildfires are the only natural disaster that we actually have any say of it actually happening. You know, we can't stop tectonic plates from causing earthquakes. We can't uh, stop it from raining to cause floods, but we can keep those sparks from ever igniting those wildfires. So we have to be extra crazy diligent in trying to keep these uh, ignitions down. And we, we know in California, over 90% of the wildfires that we see are started by people in some way. And so being able to keep those ignitions down, being taking personal responsibility, and just being careful, uh, it's so incredibly important you know, for everyone, whether you're uh, in downtown uh, San Francisco, or if you're in the Wadlands and Plumas County in the Sierras, uh, because it's affecting us all. All right, important reminder as we head into these hotter and hotter summer months. Uh, once again, we have been speaking to Chris Dykus, a professor of wildland fire and fuels management at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Chris Dykus, thanks so much. Thank you very much. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. It's another hot, dry summer for California, and so far on the program, we've been talking about what could be in store as the state's fire season kicks into high gear. But even without the threat of wildfires, the heat alone poses its own dangers. Dangers that were illustrated quite vividly in recent weeks during the record-breaking heat wave that struck the Pacific Northwest, claiming hundreds of lives. The heat hasn't been quite as extreme here in California, but in a world with a changing climate, experts say such extreme weather events will only become more common. So to learn more about what could be coming and what should be done to prepare, we're going to welcome onto the program now Christy Ebay, a professor in the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the University of Washington, who studies the health risks of climate change. Christy Ebay, welcome to the program. Thank you. So the death toll coming out of this recent heat wave, uh, once again, across Oregon, Washington, and Western Canada. Uh, estimates for that toll are now counted in the hundreds. So we're talking about a truly uh, alarming toll. Uh, also, uh, quite eye-opening for those of us who don't typically think of heat waves as posing this kind of danger. But, uh, of course, our planet has uh, a very long history of disastrous heat waves, so uh, the dangers are, in fact, quite well established. You are correct. The latest numbers on the number of people who died in the heat wave is well over a thousand. And those numbers are only going to continue to rise as we have access to all the death certificates of the people who died during that time period. Almost all heat related deaths are preventable. People don't need to die in heat waves. And as we go into a warmer future with more, more intense and longer heat waves, there's a lot of action that needs to be taken to ensure that we're prepared. And so let's talk a little bit about what that warming future might look like. Uh, the the This particular heat wave took a lot of us by surprise. We were seeing the record temperatures in a lot of these places, and including Portland, absolutely uh, shattered. But uh, as you suggest, we're probably in store for many more of these records being broken. How, how tightly linked are these sorts of weather events with climate change? We've known for quite some time from the observations that climate change is increasing the frequency, the intensity, and the duration of heat waves. And all the projections say that that's going to continue and perhaps even accelerate. This was an exceptional heat wave. Having records broken by 11 degrees Fahrenheit is very rare. 
there's not many instances where that has happened. Usually we break our records by a tenth of a degree. So we don't know if we're gonna have a heat wave this intense. What we know from the climate models is that if we don't reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and temperatures continue to rise around the world, that this event, which was at least a one to 1,000 year event, if not rarer than that, that if the earth warms another 0.8 degrees Celsius, we could see these kinds of events every five to 10 years. And help us understand from a medical perspective, why it is that heat is so dangerous. I mean, I think when most of us think about natural weather disasters, heat really isn't high on the list. Uh, we'd probably think more about flooding or, or hurricanes, but you know, the numbers that you're talking about right there show that um, it really should be. This was a mass casualty event, and it's not the kind of term that we typically think of when we think of heat waves. Heat is the number one weather-related killer of Americans. The estimates of the number of Americans who die every year from heat are in the thousands to tens of thousands. It depends on exactly how you do the modeling. But we do know there's a very high burden. And what happens to us individually, as the temperature goes up, our body has mechanisms to keep our core body temperature down. For those of you who've ever done anything like Pilates, there's a lot of emphasis on your core. And we do worry about that temperature around your major organs. And so your body tries to keep that temperature within a pretty narrow range. And if you get too hot, all of us are familiar, for example, with sweating of trying to reduce your temperature. If those mechanisms are unsuccessful, and if you don't have access to ways to get yourself cool, taking a cooling shower, uh, going to a place with a fan where you can get cooler, then your cells and your organs start to heat up and they get past the temperature range at which they really can work effectively. And particularly for people with underlying medical conditions, then that additional stress on your heart, on your lungs, on your kidneys can result in people having premature deaths from heart attacks, for example. Yeah. All right. One more time, uh, we are speaking with uh, Christy Ebai, once again, a professor in the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the University of Washington, speaking with her about the threats posed by heat waves, especially in light of the recent heat wave that struck the Pacific Northwest, uh, claiming now uh, over a thousand lives uh, confirmed. So you mentioned just a few moments ago that all of these deaths were really preventable and there are, there are steps that can be taken to prevent heat deaths. Let's talk about what those steps are right now. Um, here in the Bay Area, of course, uh, anybody who follows the news on particularly hot days will know that uh, cooling centers are set up throughout the region and uh, county officials are doing what they can to provide people with water and, and places to cool down. What other sorts of steps uh, are, are needed in these sorts of extreme events? I start with the very basic. Very few people understand that heat's a risk. People don't think about heat as a health risk. And making sure that people understand that and understand the actions that they can take. And I mentioned, you know, we sweat. We can find ways to bring our core body temperature down with fans, with going out to a shady area. But also to think about how we can reach out to our family, our friends, and our colleagues to make sure that those who are at higher risk are doing what needs to be done so that they can be protected when the heat continues to rise. When you think about the level of the city, 
you want to make sure that there is a heat wave early warning and response plan. And that has to be a pretty comprehensive arrangement. It's an all of government and more than all of government kind of plan because you need to think about where are the most vulnerable? Are you putting the cooling centers where the most vulnerable are located? How are the most vulnerable going to get to the cooling center? You're thinking they should walk to a bus stop and wait for a bus and go there? How late is the cooling center going to be open? If it's really hot at night, you may need to keep that cooling center open all night. How are you going to reach out to the unhoused? How are you going to reach out to particularly marginalized communities, people who don't have English as a first language? So there's lots of elements of these plans that need to be put together so that the city as a whole is prepared along with all their partners. For example, faith-based organizations, trusted voices with our low, and low income and marginalized communities and have a plan in place that you can set up and turn on at the beginning of summer so that when a heat wave arrives, everybody's ready and knows what they need to do. Yeah. And I suppose a point that's been running through all of this is the fact that this did have did impact different people differently. You were mentioning, you know, how do you get to a cooling center? Uh, do you wait at a bus stop? You know, different people are going to have different access to these opportunities to cool. And that's why we are seeing disparate impacts in, in terms of who is suffering, going to the hospital and, and ultimately dying. Exactly right. There are very differential impacts and particularly in cities like San Francisco, you also need to think about your tourists. Many don't speak English. Even if they do, they may not be watching TV. They may not be listening to the radio. How do we reach out to all of the different languages that are spoken in San Francisco? And so it's important to partner with trusted organizations, trusted voices, so that they can amplify the messages, amplify the education, and making sure that you do reach out much more broadly. We know from a heat wave, well, a couple of heat waves that occurred in Europe in 2003, as I mentioned, over 70,000 excess deaths. A few years later, there was a similar magnitude heat wave and there were excess deaths. They were in the range of a thousand or so, but a big difference. And the big difference was because they put in heat wave early warning systems. Lives can be saved People don't need to die in heat waves. So I think one thing that was especially eye-opening about this recent heat wave is the fact that it happened in a region that we typically associate with relatively cool summers. And so here in the Bay Area, we uh, many parts of obviously there's a lot of microclimates in the Bay Area, but many parts of the Bay Area are in a similar mindset, don't typically think of preparing for heat as being all that important uh, over the course of their summer. It sounds like what you're talking about is what's needed for a lot of us is really a, a change in our, our frame of reference as to what levels of heat we need to be prepared for and how we think about heat. You know, you're talking about it in terms of really uh, a natural disaster that uh, uh, demands the same level of preparation that we're putting towards other natural disasters. It is complicated because weather varies from day to day. We've all had hot days. And living in Seattle, I can tell you, boy, we had an 80 degree, perfectly sunny day and everybody's outside. And so it is a challenge to get people to understand that maybe that 80 degrees is not safe for everybody. Maybe great for a whole pile of us, but it's not safe for everybody. And there have been really significant heat waves over the last several decades. There was a massive heat wave around Moscow several years ago, more than 50,000 excess deaths. Last year, there was a heat wave in Siberia 
very extreme. There was a heat wave a year or two ago in Scandinavia. There was over 700 deaths just in Sweden alone from the heat wave. Everybody needs to be prepared. These are occurring in lots of different places. And do you think that this recent experience might serve as a wake-up call for folks here on the West Coast? It's excellent that you're covering the story and raising the awareness that, yes, these are steps that need to be taken. And we are in an area of the country that does work to address the risks of a changing climate. So I certainly hope that this does result in the changes that are needed. All right. Well, on that note, we have been speaking to Christy Ebay, professor, once again in the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the University of Washington. And uh, once again, she studies the health risks of climate change. Christy Ebay, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.